0: Well, good morning. We're going to talk about it a little more this evening, but uh, this is not exactly how we had planned things. Uh, This is not exactly how we had hoped that we'd be spending our Sunday morning, although we are so grateful that we have the technology that we have, that we can have this virtual worship together, that we can, you know, come together through uh, online services, and we appreciate you joining us this morning. You know, I, I thought about maybe taking a break from the series that we're doing here at Oldham Lane and maybe uh, focusing more on what we can do during these these difficult times and, and how we can respond to the coronavirus and what is going on in the world around us. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, A, I think everybody's sick and tired of talking about it, and B, Where we're at in our series really kind of goes along with what is going on in the world around us, and we're especially going to make that connection tonight. If you are new to our online services and you hadn't been keeping up, uh, we've been doing a series on Sunday mornings that will last all year entitled Jesus Is, and we fill in the blank with something every week. And right now we're in the I Am statements. So obviously we're looking at Jesus is the light of the world. And then on Sunday evenings to kind of help our retention, we are doing part B or, or the second part of it. And we're talking about I Am and we're filling in the blank. So this morning it's Jesus is the light of the world, and tonight will be I am the light of the world. So I hope you'll join us again at 5 to have part 2 in this series. I want to start this morning, though, in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting in verse 53, it it reads like this. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they had persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on sin no more. Now, unfortunately, this text is known by many, even outside of Christianity, for the wrong reasons. This is a twisted text. It is one that is often abused and misused. And here's how people often abuse and misuse it. They often say, because we are not flawless as human beings, we should never point out the sins of another. But is that what Jesus intended? Is that what he expected us to glean from this passage and to walk away believing? In dissecting this passage, I think it's important to understand that the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman who was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus instead of bringing her to the Roman authorities. Jesus had nothing to do with legal affairs. If they really wanted to prosecute this woman, they would have taken her to Rome. But you see, they were trying to catch Jesus in a trap. They were seeking to expose him because if Christ had pronounced a judicial ruling on this sinful woman, the Jewish leaders would have reported it to the Roman authorities. Authorities and Jesus would have been in trouble, but the accusers committed a major blunder. They showed their hypocrisy in that they didn't bring the man along with the woman. In their attempt to expose Jesus, they actually exposed themselves. They declared the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Think about that, in the very act, in the embrace, in the heat of the moment, in the passion of the moment. With that little statement, the very act, the scribes and the Pharisees incriminated themselves. When they stated that the woman was caught in the very act of adultery, they were admitting that there was a man involved in this. So where was he? You see, the law required that you bring both parties for the prosecution. So where was the man? The prosecutors were in violation of the law. They had not carried out proper legal procedures. So Jesus says, He who is out without sin, he is saying, none of you are in the position to prosecute this woman because you are violating the very law that you claim to honor. Now the Greek word here for condemn is the word katakrino and it suggests handing down a judgment or passing a sentence. And so Jesus informs the woman that she was not judicially sentenced. Understand he's not sanctioning her adultery. He's not signing off on what she did. In fact he even told her go and sin no more. But with the accusers gone there's no case. The witnesses were required under law To throw the first stones, but there were no more witnesses. They were dismissed because they were violating, as I said, the very law that they claimed to honor. But it makes you wonder, what did Jesus write in the dust? You know, that's what we often focus on in this passage, or at least I do. I've always been curious. What is it that Jesus wrote in the dust when he stooped down to write on the ground? Certain later manuscripts might give us a clue or at least a hint these later manuscripts suggest that Jesus stooped down, and he wrote the very sins of those prosecutors in the dust. There might be something to this because the normal word for write or to write in the Greek is graphine. However, the word that's used here is katagraphine, which means to write down or record against someone. One of the meanings of kata is against now I'm not saying that you can you can walk away this morning saying Chris said that it is an absolute fact that when Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust what he was actually writing were the sins of the men who brought this adulterous woman to Jesus I'm not saying it's an absolute fact I'm just saying that there might be some truth to that based on some later manuscripts based on the original language and, and you know based on the fact it's just kind of cool to think that way isn't it that would be neat if that's what happened I mean that would be, you know, pretty telling for sure, but you imagine this scene. Jesus is in the temple. He is teaching when these accusers come in and interrupt him, bringing this woman to them, uh, to Jesus, who had committed adultery. And as they persist in pushing Jesus for an answer, he most definitely gives them one. In essence, our Lord says, go ahead, stoner, if you are flawless if you are without sin, go ahead. Without sin here in the Greek means without even a sinful desire. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you can stone her if you've never wanted to do the same thing yourself. You can stone her if you've never had the desire to, to commit the same type of sin that she did. There's a book that I looked at recently that, that gives the inner workings of the circus back in the days when the circus used to travel from town to town by train. And I I know it's weird. I I don't know why I read this stuff, but I found it really fascinating that they said within the circus, there was this pecking order that everyone understood. It's really kind of fascinating. The three-legged man, for instance, outranked the bearded woman who outranked the guy with uh, the crab claw hands. I mean, it may be not interesting to anyone else, but I found it rather fascinating. But as I read through this, I couldn't help but think about how we kind of have our own pecking order as well. We kind of tend to think that some sins are worse than others, and maybe our sins are not as glaring as someone else's. You think about how maybe someone else's sin is more egregious than your own. And, and you know, even within the church we do this, but you think about what was the greatest sin in the passage we read in John chapter 7 going into John chapter 8. What, what's the most egregious sin here? Is it the adulterous woman? Or is it the fact that the Pharisees brought this woman for personal gain while ignoring the sin that resided in their own hearts? I mean, if nothing else, that was just as egregious, right? How likely is it that there would have been two witnesses to the adultery? I mean, how likely is that? I would think very unlikely, right? What are the odds that by coincidence, two different people would stumble on a woman in the very act of adultery. I mean, I think the evidence leaves little doubt as to the fact that, that this was a trap, that this woman was caught in a trap. She was caught in it. However, she wasn't just the catch, she was also the bait. The scribes and the Pharisees were good at dehumanizing. That's what they were doing here. They believed that God had no use for someone like this woman, and so therefore they had no use for her either. To them, she had no name, no personality, no feelings, no heart. And when you use people to prove your point, even if it's a religious point, you're training or treating people as objects to be used rather than people to be loved. That was a major problem that plagued the hearts of the Pharisees. They were more interested in law than they were love. I don't know if it's a true story but I read somewhere that President Thomas Jefferson and his men were crossing a a swelling river uh, on horseback and one of the men was thrown from his horse and was, was hurt and lying on the riverbank while the horse took off and, and went to the other side and so the man was lying there hurt and he kept reaching for people to help him up and you know to get him back on his feet and no one would stop and help until Thomas Jefferson came by on horseback and and, and, and dismounted his horse and and got up and, and helped the man to his feet and set him on his horse and crossed the river with him and when the man got to the other side some of his cohorts said why did you get the president to help you? And he said, well, "I I didn't know he was president at the time. All I know is that on some people's faces is a no, and on some people's faces is a yes. And written on the faces of the Pharisees was a no. Written on the face and the heart of Jesus was a yes. And so at this point, you're thinking, okay, well, Chris, you said that we were going to talk about Jesus is the light of the world." Uh, Maybe you forgot that, or maybe you got off track. I know you work ahead. Maybe you lost sight of what it is you're supposed to be doing this morning. No, no, no. I understand completely that we're supposed to be focusing on Jesus being the light of the world, but there's some setup here, and that's what we were doing. Now we jump in to John chapter 8, starting in verse 12, and it reads like this. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is teaching in the temple. More specifically, he's in the temple treasury or the court of women. The temple treasury was a busy place. It would have been a great place for a rabbi to gather an audience. When a rabbi sat down to teach, as Jesus was doing, it meant that he was giving the essence or the heart of his teaching. He was about to give the heart of God. And that's what Jesus, the rabbi, was doing. But something else was going on as well. This was all during the festival of the tabernacles or a festival of booths. On the night of the first day of the festival, there was a ceremony known as the illumination of the temple. This took place in the court of the women. And in the center of the court, there was this big candelabra that was lit. And it is said that these candelabra put forth such a blaze that it would light Jerusalem, and every courtyard, all night until the rooster crowed in the morning, the wisest and the holiest men of Israel danced before the Lord and sang psalms of joy and praise while spectators looked on. And it is against this backdrop that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. For those who follow Jesus, there would be light. Not only for one evening, but for eternity. The light in the temple was a brilliant light, but it would flicker and it would die. But Jesus is claiming to have a light that lasts. But there's more. It's in the temple, in the court of the women, that Jesus is interrupted by these scribes and these Pharisees. They bring in this woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And it's immediately after that episode that Jesus says these words, I am the light of the world. This woman was caught in darkness. She was living in darkness. And at least part of it was her fault because, I mean, obviously it was self-inflicted because she was guilty of sin. She stood condemned, but embarrassed, ashamed, a public spectacle. This was the darkest moment of her life. You know what she needed in that moment more than anything? Yeah, she needed light. Read the story about Rebecca Thompson. When Rebecca Thompson was young, her and her sister were kidnapped by some thugs outside of Casper, Wyoming. And they were taken to the Fremont Canyon Bridge, which was 112 feet above the North Platte River. And Rebecca Thompson and her sister were raped and abused and thrown off the bridge. Rebecca's sister, Amy, hit a rock and was killed instantly. Rebecca careened off the side of the landscape and landed in the river. With a broken hip, she was able to to make her way to the shore. She spent the night wedged between some rocks in the canyon so that she could get relief from the cold and the wind. She was eventually found, she healed up, and she was able to survive. But that day always haunted her, as you can imagine. And for 19 years, she lived with the horror of that moment, the darkness of that moment until one day she decided that she wanted to take her boyfriend and her two-year-old daughter back to the Fremont Canyon Bridge to revisit that night, because it was eating away at her. She thought she might find some closure if she went back, and so she returns with her boyfriend and two-year-old daughter to the Fremont Canyon Bridge, and the gravity of the moment overwhelmed her. She was weeping bitterly, and the boyfriend didn't want their child to see her mother in such a state. So he carried the toddler back to the car. And that's, that's, when, that's when they heard Rebecca's body hit the water. The screams of terror echo loudly. And Rebecca just couldn't take it anymore. She felt that the only way to get out of the darkness of her life was to, to end her life. She needed hope. She needed love and compassion, and and it was such a dark time in her life that she never could really overcome the tragedy of years ago. The woman in our story needed hope. She needed love and compassion. She needed grace and mercy, and you're thinking to yourself, well, she doesn't deserve that. She was caught in the very act of adultery, but if you're thinking that way, pause, because that's how the Pharisees and the religious rulers thought. All they cared about was justice no love, no compassion, no grace, no mercy, just law. And I think we've all been there, haven't we? I think we've all experienced the darkness and the shame that's associated with sin. Sometimes it's public. Maybe you've been marked by divorce. Maybe you didn't even want it, but it came your way. Maybe you've been hampered by a disability or maybe you've been afflicted by a disease or maybe it's more private in nature. Maybe you've been pushed over the edge by an abusive spouse or maybe you've been molested by, by a family member. And Whether public or private, you're forced to deal with it. You know, there are Rebecca Thompsons in every community and there are Fremont Canyon bridges in every town. And they're certainly prevalent within the pages of Scripture because the Bible is a book. Of failures. We see it over and over again in the pages of Scripture, individuals who are well acquainted with the rock-hard floor of the canyon of shame. What does a person need in the darkest moments of their life? I'll tell you what they need. They need light. Because when light shines into darkness, light immediately wins. You see, following the Pharisees would bring nothing but darkness because they were the self-appointed custodians of conduct. They were the committee of high ethics. They were the agents of righteousness. They were the pronouncers of judgment. They were the court of condemners. In their minds, God had no use for an adulterous woman. Therefore, they had no, no use for her either. They were doing the Lord's work, they thought. You know what it is? You know what that all is? That's darkness. To think that way and to operate that way is to operate in the dark. How dark of an existence would it be to, to live that way? Let me uh, stop at this point and ask you a question. What do you think the law was meant to do? The old law, what do, you, what do you think? If you could boil it down or just summarize it in a few words, what was the purpose of the law? Well, I think it was this. The law was meant to be the light that reveals how dirty the room is. The law was meant to illuminate the character of God. It was also meant to shine the spotlight on the seriousness of sin. The law brought to light the need for atonement, but there was a darkness associated with the law as well. There was a bit of darkness. The law could not relieve someone of their sin permanently. The darkness of the law is most clearly seen in the scribes and Pharisees' perversion of it. They had gone well beyond the legitimate dictates of the law, adding their own human traditions, their own fence laws and hedges about it. And as a result, the law became burdensome. It was like a a yoke. It was heavy among, among the people. And the scribes and the Pharisees had turned the law into something rote and mechanical. What they completely missed is the intention. The law was intended to lead people to Christ. The law was never intended to be permanent. Rather, its purpose was to point to the coming Messiah. You see, although the law was the light that revealed how dirty the room was, it wasn't the broom that swept it clean. Now, that was Jesus. The law was meant to point to him. Do you know what the rabbis taught that the name of the Messiah was? Light. Light had a special association for the Jewish people. Psalm 27 and 1 reads, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 60 and verse 19 states, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Micah said, though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Light was a common association with the Messiah, with God. Now consider all of this in light of Jesus's statement. What is really, what is Jesus really saying when he says, I am the light of the world? He's saying, I am the one that the prophets spoke of. I am the Messiah that they all spoke of that they all longed for. I am the anointed one. Not only that, he says, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. He who follows me. Now, some versions, maybe yours says, whoever follows me, whoever, not just Jew, but also Gentile, whoever, right? This of course, didn't set well with the religious leaders, Their stubborn, hard heart wouldn't let them see the light. It wouldn't let the light into their hearts. As a result, Jesus tells them that they don't even know who God is. They are living in darkness. Verse 27 says, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. The tragedy of the whole history of Israel was designed so that Jews would recognize the Son of God when he came. The fact that the religious elite didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah was proof positive that they didn't know God, that they didn't know the Holy Scriptures. They had become so caught up in their own traditions and doctrines. They were so intent on their own desires and doing their own thing that they became blind to what God was doing. Jesus was illuminating God. He was illuminating the scriptures. He was illuminating everything the law and the prophets spoke about, yet these self-professed experts in the law couldn't see it. It's important that we be very clear about something here. I mentioned it in the beginning, but I think it bears repeating. Jesus is not overlooking this woman's sin. He is not making light of adultery. He's also not saying that Christians should never confront the sins of another because as a human race, we are not flawless ourselves. That's not the message. Pointing out one sin in an effort to lovingly help them overcome is nowhere near the same as the attitude and behavior of the Pharisees. Jesus did not approve of the woman's actions or her lifestyle. In fact, he tells her to leave her life of sin. And it's important for us to grasp this because if the woman had left Jesus's presence and continued a life of immorality, then she would have been judged on the day of judgment. She would have been condemned, but not this day, not this day. Now this day she didn't need a judge. She was, she was already condemned. She had already been judged, right? There will come a day when Jesus will assume the role and responsibility of judge, but until that day Jesus has offered himself to each and every individual as an atoning sacrifice. He came the first time to seek and save the lost. He will come again to judge Remember our Lord's words in John chapter 3, verse 17. He says, for, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's why Jesus treated the woman as he did. The Hebrew writer states, It is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. But she wasn't dead yet. Judgment was in her future as it is with all of us, but the Pharisees were not qualified to judge her. The crowd was not qualified. Only Jesus was qualified to judge this woman. And that wasn't his purpose for being there. His purpose for coming to this earth the first time was to bring light, to illuminate the way of salvation, and to inform sinners that you don't have to live in darkness. For this woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus wasn't the light of the world. No, he was her light. He was the light of her world. For me, Jesus isn't just the light of the world. He is the light of my world. It's personal. Jesus is my light. He he is your light. And he's that for everyone. The light of Christ penetrates our own personal darkness. And when light shines into darkness, it immediately wins. Again, understand, I am in no way trying to make light of sin or the sin of this woman. I mean, if I were married to this woman and she was caught in the very act of adultery, I might think that she got off easy. I might be very upset. I most assuredly would, right? However, we can't dismiss the fact that maybe we need to put ourselves in in her sandals a little bit. Under the law, she was condemnable to death by stoning. Do you know what other sins were punishable by death under the old law? Here they are. Things like murder, violating the Sabbath, blasphemy, kidnapping, hitting or cursing your parents, a stubborn and rebellious child, idolatry, homosexuality, premarital sex. You know, we can look at the sins of another and we can say, how egregious, you know, that's a class A felony, and then maybe think, well, ours isn't so bad, but I look at this list and I think I could certainly be guilty of idolatry. Maybe you've been guilty of a sin or two that's on this list. I think it's easy to look at the sins of another and think, well, those are more egregious than mine. But I have to remind myself that I have been guilty of egregious crimes against God as well. I am guilty in the sight of a righteous judge. I deserve death as well. Therefore, I need to put down my rocks. I think we all have a responsibility to be a light in the world, something we're going to talk about more tonight. I think we all need to put our rocks down. And we all need to seek to show love and compassion in helping others to come to Christ and to have light because there's so many people that are living in darkness. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this ability to have the resources that we have to, to share and in, in worship online, even though that we're not together under one roof, that we can still in some way be together. Sharing your word, singing praises to you, we thank you so much that the church is not relegated to a building, but that we are your church. And we pray that as your church, that we can be lights in the world, that we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to show him to those around us who are living in darkness with the hope that they will come to the light and the hope that they will find salvation in you. It's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. You know, it's kind of uh, odd to offer an invitation when we're doing an online service, but I do want you to know that if you need prayer, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're living in darkness, don't hesitate to contact us. We love you and we thank you.